Well, we praise God uh, for what he is doing in the city of Cincinnati, and we're so thankful that we have an opportunity to be a part of his work uh, over there. Well, my name is BJ, and uh, it's great to be with you this morning. I'm going to be uh, opening up God's word with you uh, this, this morning. And uh, for those of you here in the West, as well as for those of you in the East, uh, really looking forward to be able to dive in uh, to God's word together. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16, and uh, we're going to look, be looking at two different important conversations that happen uh, in Matthew 16. And those two conversations both deal with control and, and who's in charge. This morning, I was uh, hanging out at my, uh, my uh, kitchen table, uh, hanging out with the twins. Uh, we have four kids, our oldest, our oldest daughter, Hannah, and then we have twin three-year-olds uh, who are three, and then we have a 10-month-old foster son. And uh, so um, sometimes the girls uh, get up early, and so they found me at the kitchen table. I'm sitting there uh, thinking and praying and reading my, reading my Bible and, and uh, drinking my, my uh, tea. So, of course, they forced me to make them two little cups of tea so that they could drink tea with me. And uh, so together, we're drinking tea, we're, we're hanging out, we're talking, and somehow we got to talking about uh, driving. They were asking me about how I drive my car, and uh, they asked me if they were going to get a car one day. And I said, yeah, the plan is uh, Mary and I are going to buy you a car, and all four of you just have to share it. So it's just going to get passed down. And, and I got to thinking, you know, with them being twins, how's that going to work? And I said, girls, which one of you is going to drive? And they grew, they grew quiet. And then Mia very thoughtfully said, Dad, you're just going to have to buy a car with two driver's seats so we can both drive. <laughs> to which Lydia added, we're just going to put Hannah in the trunk. <laughs> yeah, so they already have a plan and they're three. Um, and so as I said, we're going to be looking at, uh, at Matthew chapter 16, and uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to spending some time in God's Word with you this morning. If you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to grab one from uh, the pew rack in front of you, or if you're in the ESL auditorium, you'll see a number of flight attendants moving throughout the cabin with that little cart of Bibles. That's what I always feel like whenever I'm in the East. I'm holding up bags of pretzels and Bibles for people over in the East. So anyway, uh, we're all going to jump on board here, and uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16. Well, as, we look, as we've been moving through the book of Matthew now uh, for several months, we've seen a number of situations, you could say a number of scenarios that have come up uh, time after time. We see kind of the same thing happening again and again. And one of those scenarios is a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day. Whether the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of doing something wrong or they are, are going after, they're accusing his, uh, his disciples or we'll see later in Matthew 23 where Jesus confronts the Pharisees, they seem to just always be uh, butting heads. And you know, as I've been thinking about this, I've been thinking, aren't they supposed to be on the same team? I mean, you have Jesus who's God's son and then you have the Pharisees who'd been studying God's word Aren't they supposed to be on the same team? Aren't they supposed to agree? And while there probably were some things that, that uh, the Pharisees and Jesus agreed upon, like the existence of God, uh, there probably weren't too many other things that they agreed on. And since, obviously, uh, Jesus is God's son, so he's always right, we have to wonder, how is it that the Pharisees lost their way? Where, where did they get mixed up? What, what happened here so that they would be in such uh, opposition to, to the Son of God? 
And so in order to understand uh, that, we have to look a little bit into uh, Israel's background. We have to look a little bit back uh, into their history. <coughs> and so um, from the very beginning, we, we read that, that uh, God created uh, the first humans, Adam and Eve, in his image. And, and all of us are created in God's image. And the reason that we're created in God's image is so that we can interact with him, so that we can have a relationship with him. God desired to, to love us and, and to care for us. And God desires for us to, to interact with him, to, to worship him and to love him and to honor him. And so we see this played out throughout, uh, throughout the pages of scripture. We see that God chose Abraham and his family to be his chosen people. We see generations later that God uh, gave his chosen people, the Israelites, his law. And the law was intended to help his chosen people understand his personality. And so really the law, while, while it was in, in many ways a collection of laws, it really was a glimpse into God's heart, into his personality. God said, I want you to do these things so that we can be in a right relationship. This is what honors me. This is what is respectful to me. This is, this is what worship looks like. And God also promised in his law that he would care for his people, that he would love them, that he would provide for them. So there were situations and, and times, seasons in, in Israel's history when this went really, really well. It was, it was really, really sweet. God's people honored him and they loved him and, and they worshiped him and, and he was their God. But unfortunately, there were also times and seasons when this did not go very well. We read about one in particular in which God called his chosen people a wicked and adulterous generation because they had, they had strayed far from him. Their hearts were no longer near to him. Instead, they were disrespectful. They were disobedient. They were dishonoring. They were no longer worshiping him with pure hearts. They had embraced uh, idols. They had embraced other gods. They had embraced injustice and, and wickedness and evil. <clears throat> and so God says, if you continue on this path, you'll be destroyed. But unfortunately, God's people remained on a path of disobedience and dishonor. And so what we see is that God used the nations around Israel to, to come in and, and attack them and destroy them. Many of God's people were killed. Many others were taken as slaves uh, to, to other nations. And so what we see is that in the generations after Israel's destruction, that slowly a, a small remnant of God's people returned to the land after it had been destroyed. But not only did they return to the land, they also returned to God. And they said, we want to honor him. And we never, ever want this to happen again. We never want to be destroyed by God again. We never want to turn our backs on him again. We want to remain obedient. And so uh, this, this group of people, this remnant, they, they sought to swing the pendulum from disobedience to obedience. And so as a part of that, there rose a group of leaders, religious leaders known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees took it upon themselves to study God's word and to teach God's word. But the most important thing they did was they wanted to uphold obedience to God's law. They wanted to prevent uh, God's people from ever being uh, taken captive or being destroyed again. And so the Pharisees began to develop what was known as the oral tradition. The oral tradition was this. It was a collection of rules and practices and regulations 
that they built around God's law. And so you can see that <laughs> if this is God's law, they wanted to protect people from disobeying it. So they built this oral tradition as a, as a hedge or as, as guardrails around God's law. Now we have to remember, this was given by God, but the oral tradition was created by men. It was created by humans. And so as the generations went on, the oral tradition grew larger and larger and larger. And unfortunately, their attempts to swing the pendulum from disobedience back to obedience failed and they swung too far to the point of oppression. Because in creating the oral tradition, people grew farther and farther away from God's heart, the heart of God's law, which was to love him with all of their lives and to love others. But people got caught up in the, in, in the daily rituals and, and, and uh, uh, rules of, of, of trying to follow all of these little laws, all, all of these little practices. But what also ended up happening is that it created a, a hierarchy of, of religious leaders, the Pharisees and others who, who begun to, they began to take great pride in their position and look down upon the, the, or the other people. It was, it was a heavy burden upon God's people. <clears throat> and so this is the situation that we see Jesus's ministry taking place in. This was, this was the climate religiously. And so uh, another group of people that we have to, we have to understand real quick uh, before we jump in are the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the social elites of the day. They held high positions in both the religious and political circles. And so you could say that they were, they, they were the aristocrats of the day. They had the money, they had the power, they had the influence. And so for the Sadducees, they were very much threatened by Jesus. Because if Jesus really was God's son, the king of kings, then that meant that they were going to lose their spot on top. They were no longer going to be in charge. And so the Sadducees were threatened by Jesus. So this brings us to, to our conversation, starting in verse 1 of chapter 16 in Matthew's gospel. It says this, it says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And so together, these two groups come to Jesus and they want to test him. Now, the word here that Matthew uses, uh, test, is also used when Matthew describes how Jesus was tested by Satan in the desert. So Satan comes to Jesus to test him and try to trick him and you know, try, try to trip him up. And so that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to do here. Now, let me tell you this. This is not a good start for the Pharisees and Sadducees because they're doing the same thing that Satan does, which is never, ever a good idea. If you ever find yourself doing the same thing, doing the same thing that Satan does, you need to jump ship and, and go the other direction because that's, that's not good. So that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing. Essentially, they came... To Jesus because they said, we want you to show us a trick. We want you to convince us that indeed you are God's son. They wanted what, what we read here, a sign from heaven, a sign from God, because they didn't believe that Jesus was from God. They were devaluing everything that Jesus had done up to this point. Now, does Jesus have to perform a miracle for these guys? No. He doesn't have to perform for them. I mean, think about it. Jesus had already done so many miracles. He had already raised a girl from the dead. Jesus had walked on water. Jesus gave sight to the blind and, deaf to the, and hearing to the deaf. Jesus, Jesus fed 5,000 people. And then later, we see that he, he fed another 4,000 people. Weren't these miracles enough to convince the Pharisees and Sadducees? 
in the eyes of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these miracles didn't count because they wanted Jesus to do a miracle on their terms. They wanted Jesus their way. So Jesus replies to them. He says this. He says in verse two, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning you say, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. A sign of Jonah? Jonah? If you're not familiar with the, with the story of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet from the Old Testament who God called to go to the city of Nineveh. So what Jonah does is God called him to go to Nineveh. So of course, he gets on a ship and goes as far away from Nineveh as possible. It's not a good idea. God chased him down, sent a storm. Jonah ends up in the water. And then God sends a big fish to come and swallow Jonah up. And Jonah spends the next three days inside the stomach, inside the belly of this fish. Not a good place to be. Well, then after three days, God gave the fish a stomachache, I don't know, and uh, the fish ends up going, and it says in, in great King James language that Jonah was spat up onto the beach. And so after three days, Jonah comes out of the belly of this fish. In the same way, Jesus is saying the sign of Jonah is this, that he would die, that he would be buried in the heart of the earth, and that after three days, he would emerge alive. This was going to be Jesus' greatest miracle. This was going to seal the deal. This was going to confirm that he was indeed God's son. But the bottom line is this. The Pharisees and Sadducees had already made up their minds. It didn't matter what Jesus was going to do. He wasn't God's son in their eyes. They rejected him. In fact, we read in, in, Matthew, 6, in, in uh, Matthew 28, even after Jesus was indeed resurrected and, and the reports of, of his resurrection spread everywhere, that the Pharisees, these religious leaders, got together and they bribed the soldiers to say, uh, Jesus' disciples came and overpowered us and they took the body away. They bribed, they, they were trying to cover it up. They were trying to conceal this miracle because Jesus wasn't God's son in their eyes. And so we have, to, we have to wonder why. We'll get to that here in just a second because while it's easy to beat up the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, um, we'll see also that the disciples at times miss the point as well. <clears throat> we read in, in uh, verse five, um, it says that when they had went across the lake, the disciples, or it says that they went across the lake. And, and Matthew um, includes this important point where he says, and the disciples forgot to take bread. Whoops. So the guys are a little hungry here. They're, they're wondering, oh man, we forgot bread. What are we going to do? So Jesus warns them in verse six. He says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now immediately the disciples think that Jesus is talking about bread. Why? Because that's what they're thinking about. Of course, Jesus is thinking about the same thing that we're thinking about, and we're hungry. We want bread. So that's what Jesus is talking about, right? Jesus says, no, stop thinking with your stomach. Why are you worried about bread? Don't you remember the 5,000 people that, that I fed? Don't, 
You were there when we fed those 4,000 people. Don't you remember all the baskets of leftovers that we had? Don't worry about bread right now. There are bigger things happening that you need to be aware of. Don't just be concerned with your own well-being. There are bigger things happening. So then Jesus repeats himself. He says again in verse 11, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The disciples suddenly understood that he was telling them to guard against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus used the image of yeast because of the way that it permeates, because of the way that its, its effects spread. Jesus didn't want the attitude or, or the empty religion or the pride of the Pharisees to spread to his disciples. So in this passage, we see that there are two responses to Jesus. There are two responses. The first is that of the Pharisees and Sadducees who refuse to accept Jesus as God's son and thus submit to his authority. Basically, these guys were saying, you know what, Jesus, you are not the boss of us. We are not gonna come under your lordship because you're just, you're just a regular person. We refuse to believe in you. And we have to ask the question, why? Why didn't they accept Jesus as the Messiah? Why didn't they believe in him? And the answer is this, because Jesus didn't look like they expected him to look, or probably more so we could say, Jesus didn't look like they wanted him to look. They wanted Jesus on their terms. They wanted Jesus to teach and to heal and to confront people on their terms, not on his. Well, the second response that we see here is that of the disciples. Now, the disciples did at least get one thing right. They did believe that Jesus was God's son. <clears throat> but for them, they misunderstood what this meant. They thought that Jesus' power was intended for their benefit, bread. They thought Jesus should give them what they wanted. In both instances here, we see that they wanted Jesus on their terms. They wanted Jesus to fit their plans, to fit their needs, to fit their expectations. If this is Jesus, and if this is the, the Pharisees and, and the disciples, they wanted Jesus to conform to them. They wanted Jesus to serve them, to provide for them, rather than coming to Jesus and conforming to him and worshiping him and honoring him. And if we're honest, we are just like these guys. We're just like them. We want things on our terms. We want things our way. We want to be able to go to Burger King and get our food our way. We want to be able to find that magical diet or exercise plan that allows us to get healthy without having to change anything about our lives. We, we want things our way. <clears throat> let's see a quick show of hands. How many of you, when you play a game, like let's say Monopoly or another game, how many of you change the rules? Does anybody change the rules to make the game better, more fun? Looks like we have a lot of Milton Bradley Pharisees with us. Okay, that's fine. I'll raise both hands because I change the rules all the time to make the game better, to make it more fun so that we can play it on, on our terms. <clears throat> and if there's one game that I would love to change, it's the game of golf. Because like many of you, I am bad at golf. I'm bad at golf. The only reason that I go golfing is because I like to hang out with the other people who like to golf. It's, it's a social uh, sport for me. It's a social sport. And so um, I would like to uh, propose to you that we change some rules of golf. Let's, let's make golf a little bit more fun, okay? 
So I'd like to propose, somebody said no, that's all right. I'm preaching, you're not. So we're gonna change the rules of golf, okay? All right, <laughs> so we're, we're gonna change the rules of golf and uh, these are golf rules for the rest of us because for all of us who are bad at golf, why do we subject ourselves to the same rules as the professionals? I mean, they're professionals. Let's just have fun with it. So here we go. Rule number one, if you hit a bad shot, don't worry about it. Just hit another one. Just hit another shot. Because from now on, for every dollar spent on greens fees, you get a mulligan. So $36, 36 mulligans. So swing away and have fun. Also, if you happen to hit the ball into the woods, you don't have to find it. You don't have to find your ball. Just find a ball. Any ball will work. Besides, by leaving your ball God knows where, you're just paying it forward to the next person. In the likely event that your ball makes a water landing and you happen to be out of mulligans, it's okay. Just start taking do-overs. You get 36 of those as well. And when you finally reach the green, when you finally reach the green, it's an automatic gimme if the ball is at least one club length from the hole. And remember, if it's in your bag, it counts as a club. I think I can sink this putt, don't you think? This won't even fit on the camera, it's so long. All right, so here's the deal, here's the deal. For all of you who, who aren't familiar with the real rules of golf, and uh, it's okay, you're, you're actually better off for it. You're, you're better off for it. Golf is a, a fun but very frustrating sport. And here, here's the deal. We like to do things on our terms, and while it's humorous when we apply it to the game of golf, it's a very serious matter when we apply it to how we understand Jesus. How many times are we guilty of doing the same thing the Pharisees or the disciples did? If we're honest, there are times when we want to go to Jesus on our terms. We want Jesus to fit our agenda. We want to pick and choose what parts of our lives come under submission to him. Later in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus speaks about what it means to follow him. And he says this, says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, in Jesus' day, when, when someone was seen uh, carrying a cross through the streets of Jerusalem, everybody watching knew that person's about to die. That person's body will be conformed to the shape of the cross. And in doing so, it will result in their death. Because the shape of the cross is, it's unnatural. It's, it's uncomfortable. It leaves you feeling vulnerable, but it's unnatural to the point where if you remained in this shape long enough, you would suffocate and die. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the holes in their, their hands or their feet, the nail holes that caused death. It was taking this shape because it constricts your breathing. It was deadly. There was a 0% survival rate for those who, who, who were crucified. And this is what happens to us when we surrender to Christ on his terms. We die. Our life no longer takes the shape that it naturally would or the shape that we would choose it to. And instead, Jesus takes control and, and our lives conform to his shape on the cross. 
Paul describes in his letter to the Galatians in chapter two where he says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. As we've said before many times from this stage, crucifixion and death, they don't preach very well. It's, they, they aren't very popular words in our culture today. People aren't eager to come and, and hear a message about how they're gonna have to give up their lives to follow Jesus. But this is the truth of coming to him on his terms. It's the truth. Submission to Christ on his terms means obedience to his will. And it means abandoning the lives that we would otherwise build for ourselves. It means pursuing God's will for our lives, not our will for our lives. It means looking at the areas of our lives that are not under submission to Christ and, and surrendering those over to him to the point of death. You know, it's, it's amazing as, as I think about how this plays out in people's lives. You know, we have people in the life of our church who, who are doing this. They are saying, I am going to surrender my life to Christ. I am gonna surrender this part of my life to him so that he can be in charge, not me. And so I, I wanna share a few examples with you, not to bring light to their sin, but to show God's grace and God's power in, in working out people's lives. And so please, please hear this with great sensitivity and care. You know, we have a lady in our church who spoke with me who said, I've decided I'm going to walk away from a lifestyle of adultery and I'm gonna pursue God honoring relationships. Or, or a young couple who said, you know, up to this point, we have viewed our finances as, as ours. They're ours. But we feel that God is calling us to, to surrender them, to be, to be generous. And so even though this means we're gonna take a hit every month, our budget is gonna take a hit and we won't be able to save as much for retirement. We want to bring this part of our lives under submission to Christ. We want him to be in charge instead of us. We wanna come on his terms, not live financially on our terms. Or one guy who said that for years, for years he was recording dishonest numbers at work. He was just, he was padding his, his bottom line numbers. And yet he said, I'm not gonna do that anymore. God is calling me to be honest. Even in the little things, God is calling me to be honest. As I said, I don't bring these examples to you to bring light to their sin, but rather to celebrate their faithfulness and God's faithfulness. Because this is real life change. Lives are being changed. <clears throat> One college student I spoke with just last week said, I've decided I wanna give God more of my time. I've been pretty selfish with my time. I've done what I like to do, but I feel like God is calling me to, to surrender my time. And I know that that's gonna mean giving up some things that I really enjoy, but it's not my life to live. It's his life. It's Christ's life to live through me. Or one young lady who, who several years ago, she had the whole world in front of her. She'd finished up uh, college and grad school. She had, she had so many opportunities to advance in her career. She had, she had opportunities to climb the ladder and, and make a lot of money in the process. She had education. She had the credentials. She had the experience. It was all right in front of her. And she said, during this season, when, when it seems like it's a slam dunk to just take the next step, I want to pause and I want to, I want to see what God thinks. I, I want to pray and I want to ask him, Lord, what is your will? 
And sure enough, after a season of prayer, she came back, she told her parents, she told her friends, I feel like God's calling me to something completely different. Her parents were shocked because she had just finished six plus years of education to climb this ladder for for this trajectory and yet she felt that God was calling her to do something completely different. She didn't know how it was gonna work out. She didn't know how she was gonna pay the bills. She didn't know what God had for her but she knew that God had something for her, that it was going to be God's will playing out in her life rather than her own will. The reason that all these people are willing to make these kind of life changes is because it's worth it. It's worth it to follow Jesus. It's worth it for him to be in charge. This is what we were created for. We were created to honor God with our lives, to worship him, to surrender ourselves to him. And it's in surrendering ourselves to Christ's will that we find a fullness and a life and a passion and a purpose that's greater than anything we could cook up ourselves. And so here's the bottom line. We each know the areas of our lives that are self-serving and not God-honoring. By God's grace given to us through Jesus, we can bring these under his lordship. We can say, Jesus, I want to live my life on your terms, not mine. We can pursue authentic faith in him. Not a faith that's merely religious acts, not a faith that is self-serving or self-seeking, but a faith that is real and sacrificial and God-honoring. Let us recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. Let us come to him on his terms and place him over Lord over every, over, over every area of our lives. And so as we conclude today, I, I want to revisit uh, the Pharisees and, and the disciples because honestly, we left them in a kind of a bad place back in Matthew 16. <clears throat> and so I want to share with you the rest of the story. You see, we read in the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, it's, it's the story of the early church that, that after Jesus' resurrection, several Pharisees did indeed acknowledge him as Lord, and they committed their lives to following him. You know, you can imagine for these guys how they would have been rejected by their peers, how they would have been stripped of their, of their social honor and, and their high position, and yet, in declaring Jesus as God's son and their Lord, they found a greater obedience to God than they had ever found before they finally got in touch with God's real heart, his true heart, his desire for them. We also read about the disciples who at one point, as we saw in Matthew 16, had seen Jesus through self-serving eyes. And yet these men went on to completely uh, submit themselves to Christ's will. They, They discovered a sufficiency in his lordship and they placed their lives under him. We know from, from church history that all but one of the disciples were executed. They were executed. They, they gave up their lives, their very lives to serve him. These men who at one time were worried about whether or not Jesus was gonna give them bread gave him their very lives. We can have the same response. Let's pray. Lord, we wanna come before you God, we want to surrender our lives to you, knowing that you are, you are God, you're Lord. 
You sent your one and only son, Jesus, not just to save us on the cross, but to show us that he was the ultimate and supreme authority. You've given us an opportunity to submit our lives to him, to honor him with everything that we do. Lord, it's our prayer that we would do so. Take our lives, Lord. May they be an offering to you. Every part of them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're gonna continue in worship as we remember Christ's sacrifice, specifically through communion. We remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. We remember that his blood was shed for us. And you know, as we've been talking about coming to Jesus and and, and bringing our lives to him and giving up our lives for his sake, we are reminded that Jesus first gave up his life to save us. Jesus acted first. He gave up his life in order to save us from our sins. And we remember that as we take communion. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this time of communion. We remember your sacrifice. And we pray as your son taught us to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.